Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive into one of the founding principles of the modern world, the philosophy of laws. Taking a step back from our normal format, we will focus our conversation on the three principal theories that guide the reason, formation, and interpretation of laws in the modern world. In doing so, we will discuss the natural law theory, legal positism, and law as an organic process. We will then apply these philosophies to one of the most taught cases in law schools across the country, the case of the shipwrecked sailors. Breaking down the facts, we will move to discuss the application of law and how each philosophy affects the trial's outcome. After complete, we will end the podcast by addressing one fundamental question. Why should we, as sport managers and sport lovers, care about these ancient philosophies and cases? In other words, why do we need to understand these things, and how will that understanding help you better appreciate the world of sports? So if you ever wondered why we have laws, where they came from, or how past philosophers have influenced how we view and shape our world today, this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to do something a little bit different. It's the start of the new year, which means for college professors, it's the start of new courses. And one of the courses that I'm teaching this semester, in fact, the only course that I'm teaching this semester is a sport law course. And in sport law, we talk about a lot of things that we've talked about in past episodes of this podcast. We talk about the Fourth Amendment and Title IX and the Fourteenth Amendment and the application of those specific things into the world of sport and oftentimes recreation as well. In doing that on this podcast, what I've tried to do is provide context for those laws, letting you know not only what the law says and how it applies, but also why the law was put in place to start. Most of what we've talked about are federal laws or constitutional laws. And with the Constitution, it's very easy to track the reason for the law. If we look at the first 10 amendments, for example, we talk in depth about how those amendments are influenced by British law and what was happening in the colonies at the time of the Revolutionary War. But one thing we've never talked about or really dug into is going even back further in history. We've never looked at or discussed why we have laws in the first place or what the roles of laws are in our society. And so today, what I want to do is answer that question and provide you with the basic theories as to why we have laws in the first place and what their roles are in a modern society. And to really help emphasize the three different theories that stipulate why laws exist, I want to look at a single court case. One of maybe the most famous court cases, a case that's taught in law schools all across the country, and a case that we actually use in sport law and graduate programs as well. It's called the case of the shipwrecked sailor. And we use it not necessarily to discuss the application of law to sport, but we use it to discuss how laws are applied, how they're interpreted, and we can also discuss the influence of these theories on our legal system. But before we get to that case, I want to begin with a simple question that I pose every single semester to my students, whether the undergraduate or the graduate level. And that is, why do we have laws? And it's such an easy and straightforward question. Oftentimes, students see that and they say, oh, well, we have laws to establish order. And that's true. That's one of the basic fundamental reasons that we have law to keep order in our society. But the answer to that question is actually been researched and discussed and theorized about for hundreds of years. And so if we go back in time and we really look at the first individual to really write 
about why we have laws is an individual named Thomas Aquinas. He was a monk in 1225 to 1274 AD. He was a monk, meaning he worked for the church. And so as you can imagine, his thoughts and his theories are heavily influenced by the Bible. And what Thomas Aquinas felt and what he said and what he argued is that God wants good things for all of us. Aquinas argued that God created the world according to a set of laws, what he called natural laws, and that these laws were predictable and that they were goal-driven. In fact, he said that they were a goal-driven system whereby life is sustained and everything can run smoothly. If you get into reading some of Aquinas' writings, what you'll see is that he actually further develops this idea of what he labels natural law theory. And he says and argues that there are seven basic goods in life and that all of our behaviors are dictated by these seven basic goods. I always tell my students, you might not have heard of these seven basic goods or Thomas Aquinas or natural law theory, but you probably have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when I first learned and started reading about Aquinas and his natural law theory and how he viewed the world, that is what these seven basics goods remind me of. And in these, Aquinas argues that the first basic good that we as all humans have is life. Everything begins with life. And we have a desire within our lives to be happy. And Aquinas actually says God wants us to be happy. And as we're living that life, and as we are trying to be happy, it leads us to the second basic good, which is reproduction. Aquinas says, just as many religious beliefs argue across the spectrum, that part of the point of life is to reproduce, is to have offspring, to pass on our genes to the next generation, and then have that generation pass on the genes further, and down the line you go. But Aquinas argued that in order to reproduce, we first have to live a good life. Now, after we reproduce... He goes on to say that our next basic good is that we have to educate our offspring. We have to teach them about the world, about our society, about what's happening. Because in order for them to have a life or have a good life, they have to be educated on what's going on. And part of that education, he argues, is based on the next good, the fourth good, which is the fact that every individual seeks God. Now, he obviously is arguing from a Christianity viewpoint. But you can take this into other beliefs as well. Other beliefs like Buddhism or other beliefs that might worship multiple gods. And you can apply that here. He is saying that as we're educating our offspring, we need to help them find a god to find an answer to the bigger questions that are out there in the universe. And in doing these things, in living and reproducing and educating our offspring and teaching them and finding God for ourselves... We are doing that all within a societal standards, all within a community. We're not alone. And that community is his fifth basic good, the idea of living in a society. And he says that when we are living in a society, we have to act in a certain way. We have to act in a good way. Because we want to make sure that not only we live good lives, but in order for us to live a good life, other people also have to live a good life. Because we're constantly interacting with people in that society. And he said God wants us to all live good lives in that society. Which means not only do we have to be good, we have to avoid offense. The sixth basic good. We have to avoid causing harm to other people. And that harm can be across the spectrum. Harm, oftentimes in law, we talk about physical harm, murder, or injury. But offense can extend beyond just that, beyond just a physical injury. It can extend to other aspects of hurting someone. Because if we're causing harm to an individual, then they are no longer living that good life that God wants them to. And so Aquinas argues that is their sixth basic good. But he recognizes that not everyone is going to be able to do this. Not everyone is going to be able to avoid offense. We are, according to Aquinas, all sinners, which means... That if we sin, we have to have a way to punish, or as he puts it, shun ignorance. Meaning, if a person is doing something to deprive another individual of any of these basic goods that he has laid out, 
then we have to have a way to punish them, to have a consequence for those actions. And so within those seven basic goods of life, reproduction, educating one's offspring, seeking God, living in a society, avoiding offense, and shunning ignorance, he argued that from those seven basic goods, we derive natural laws. And he even took it a step further when he said that our instincts show us the basic good, and then our own reason allows us to derive the natural laws from them. So the natural law theory is based off of these ideas from Thomas Aquinas. And we can strip it down and simplify it in a more modern term by saying that natural law theory really stipulates that the government's goal, the reason we have a government, is to create laws that match God's intent. In other words, to create laws that uphold morality within our society. Under this basic principle, if a law is created that is immoral, then we would see the law as unjust or invalid. And many of you might be thinking, well, that's great. We can listen and we can hear and understand kind of what this theory is. But you might be saying, well, that doesn't hold any practical sense or application in today's society. But I would again fast forward in history to the time of the Revolutionary War. And more specifically, just before when the Founding Fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence. Because if you go back and read that document, what you will see is that the Founding Fathers were claiming that England was violating natural law. And that as a result of that, they gave the colonists the right to try to break away from them. It gave the colonists the right to break the unjust laws. What were the unjust laws? We've talked about some of these in past podcasts, things like the Stamp Act or the Tea Act, where the British government was putting taxes on the colonialists without giving the colonialists representation in the government. England was putting those taxes in place in large part to pay for other wars that England was fighting. Not only wars that were happening between the British government and the Native American population here in America, but also wars that were happening in different places. The government needed money, so they taxed the colonists. However, they didn't give them representation. And what the founding fathers said is that is unjust. Not giving us representation is immoral. Every man, they argued, should have a voice in what the government is doing through a representative. The fact that the British government was not allowing representatives to speak on behalf of the colonists meant that all the laws that passed violated this basic premise of natural law, and thus they were unjust and they were invalid. So again, even though this is theory, and even though Thomas Aquinas might be espousing some things that you might not even agree with, that's fine. The important thing to understand is that our founding fathers did agree with this. And they drafted the Declaration of Independence, signed it, and sent it to England based on this natural law theory. But that's not the only theory for why we have laws. Much later, there was a theory that was posed called legal positivism. And legal positivism really gets a strong base from one individual named Thomas Hobbes. Now, Thomas Hobbes hopefully is a name that you've heard of before, maybe in an undergraduate history class, maybe in a high school government class. But Thomas Hobbes, who lived from 1588 to 1679, he espoused a theory called the social thesis, and he wrote about it in a book. And in that book, what he said and what he described at first was the world before governments existed. He described a world in which people lived a nomadic lifestyle, meaning they didn't live in one place for very long. Oftentimes, they would follow herds of animals. And as the herd moved, so did they. And they would hunt that herd and kill it, eat it, and then continue to move along with it. In moving around so much, people didn't have a lot of possessions. Basically, whatever I could carry was what I owned, and that was it. But as we slowly start to fast forward through time, people develop new techniques for farming the land, for growing their own food. And in doing that, it meant that people didn't have to live as nomadic a lifestyle. They could stay in one place for long periods of time. And in staying in one place, that meant they could start to acquire things. They could acquire property and personal belongings. 
what happened, he argued, is that as agriculture got better and as we understood how to grow crops better, if someone was having success on a piece of land, people would move into nearby areas. And people would start to grow different crops in a system of bartering and trading those crops between one another for other crops or other services or meat from the people that were still hunting. That system started to develop and we started to formulate these small groups of people living in close proximity. We started to form towns and we started to form cities. And as we started to form towns and cities, people are living closer together. Well, before there were laws that dictated what people could do or what they should do or should not do, you could argue the biggest person in the town could go and just take whatever they wanted from anyone. So if I'm the biggest person in this town and there are no laws, I can walk into someone else's house and just take their food. Or I can walk into someone's house and just kill them and then take their property, take all their crops. Really, it was survival of the fittest. The biggest was the one that could do whatever they wanted. Well, Hobbes argued that as we started to develop these towns, people didn't want other people just coming and taking stuff from them. Who didn't want that? The smaller people. The people that felt that they were vulnerable to the whims of the larger, more powerful individuals. So Hobbes postulated that people started to come together and they started to enter into agreements where they outlined what behavior was allowed and not allowed. And in doing so, individuals agreed to give up certain rights that they had. They agreed to give those rights to the government in exchange for the government protecting them. So I, as a smaller person, I would give up my right to go take whatever I want from even a smaller person. I would give that right up to the government in exchange the government would agree to protect me from a bigger person. What Hobbes argued in the social thesis is that laws are an instrument of political sovereignty. We'll stop here for one second because in class I ask students, do you understand what sovereignty is or political sovereignty? It's a word that we oftentimes use that, like so many other words, has lost meaning to the people who have used it. And I always bring this up because I had a professor back when I was a college student who described sovereignty in maybe the most perfect way ever. He said a sovereign nation or having sovereignty means that the government can kill its own people and other governments or other countries around the world accept it. So if we look at America, for example, does our government kill our own people? They do. Different states around the country and different aspects of the federal government allow for the death penalty for crimes. And when we do that, when we execute an individual in our country, yes, there might be some uproar and people might disagree with it, but other countries aren't threatening to invade us or threatening to embargo us or threatening to set up a blockade or cut off trade with us based on that act. They recognize that we are a sovereign nation and thus we have the right to make rules that dictate the actions of our government and dictate the actions of our people. When we see an organization or a group of people kill others or do things to other people and there's a massive backlash from the global community and other governments stand up and say, you cannot do this, you cannot attack that country and kill those people, they are not yours, then that group, their political sovereignty is being challenged. So what Hobbes was saying is that law is essentially an instrument of political sovereignty, meaning laws are a method that groups of people use to create rules that guide the actions of the people in that group. And they are also recognized by other groups of individuals that might have different rules or different laws. So in the modern day, America is a sovereign country. We create laws that guide the actions of everyone in every organization that lives within our boundaries or operates within our boundaries. Those laws and rules are respected by Canada, by France, by England. They might disagree with our rules or our laws that we have implemented, but they respect those laws because we are sovereign. In return, the USA respects Canada's laws, respects France's laws, respects England's laws. 
And that idea is what we can consider political sovereignty. So what Hobbes is saying is as those people started to gather together and give up certain rights that they held in order for the government to give them some protection, that was the beginning of this idea of sovereignty. Now, within legal positism, within this idea that people give up rights to the government for, in exchange, protection from the government or help from the government, the only way that we consider a rule or law as invalid or unjust within this theory specifically is if the law was not passed using the correct legal procedures. So under legal positism, if laws are passed according to the legal procedures of that sovereign entity, then the law is valid. The big difference here from the natural law theory is that morality is not taken into consideration. In the natural law theory, I said and our founding fathers believed that if another country made rules that were immoral or violated those seven basic goods, then the law was invalid and you didn't have to follow that. Under legal positivism, you might have a law passed that is immoral, but as long as it is passed according to legal procedures, it is still seen as valid. There's a couple prime examples of this notion of legal positivism, of recognizing laws that might be immoral under natural law theory, but recognizing them under legal positivism because they were passed according to the correct procedures. There's two, two great examples from the United States. The first one, slavery. Slavery was legal in the United States up until the Civil War, really up until the passage of the 13th Amendment. Until then, the law stated that it was legal for one individual to own another. Under legal positivism, that law was passed using the correct legal procedures so that law would be valid. Under natural law theory, though, you would say that owning another individual is depriving them of the first basic good that Aquinas talked about, life. And in that fact that we're depriving them of that life, of their ability to live their life as they see fit, we've created a law that is immoral. And according to natural law theory, that law is then unjust and invalid. But even though our founding fathers set up our country and established us based off natural law theory, legal positivism has been just as influential after the country was established in determining what laws are valid or invalid. Another great example is the Japanese internment camps. During World War II, a law was passed, an executive order was passed, that dictated individuals with Japanese descent or individuals living in America from Japan were placed in what was deemed internment camps. Another more accurate way of saying it, they were placed in prison. Again, just like slavery, you can argue under natural law theory that that law is immoral and unjust and therefore it is not valid. However, there was actually multiple Supreme Court cases which dealt with the Japanese internment camps and the courts basically said it's, it's fine, we're allowed to do it in large part because we are in a time of war. Accordingly, aspects of martial law can be applied and the Constitution doesn't hold up as well and so the courts basically said, yeah, this is legal. We followed the correct legal procedures. It doesn't matter that it's immoral. We followed the correct legal procedures. Therefore, it's okay. So natural law theory and legal positivism both postulate why we have laws, but they look at laws and their validity in two very different ways. Now, as students oftentimes ask, or as students oftentimes point out, well, why can't we just combine the two theories? Aren't there people who are trying to pass laws through the correct legal procedures who are also making sure those laws are moral? And the answer is yes. Oftentimes when a debate happens on the floor of the Senate or the floor of the House, if someone deems that the law that is trying to be passed, or the bill I should say, violates basic morality in accordance to what they view as moral and immoral, they will say that. They will argue that that reason is, in fact, the reason that we should not go forward and vote for this piece of legislation. So we do see the moral argument of natural law theory come up oftentimes in the United States when a piece of legislation is being debated. But 
as long as that piece of legislation makes it through the correct legal process, meaning it's passed in the House, it's passed in the Senate, and it is signed in to legislation by the executive branch, then we see that law as valid. Now, I did say that there were three basic legal theories as to why we have laws and where laws come from. The first two, natural law theory and legal positive, speak very much to where laws come from, talking about the history of why we have laws and how they developed. The third major theory is one that talks about law as an organic process. And what this theory postulates is that all societies must work together and that laws are a means to accomplish this through setting up regulations on those interactions. So it steals a bit of its ideas from legal positivism and from Thomas Hobbes. Now, where it goes beyond that theory is this next part. Because laws and organic process argues that laws are meant to be flexible and that laws are meant to gradually change over time as part of the evolutionary process. The example that I always go to in class in discussing this idea is the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, which says a lot of different things and gives a lot of freedoms to individuals, but the main one that we know it for, the main one we oftentimes talk about, is the idea of freedom of speech. Laws and organic process would say, okay, we need to look at that law and determine what was happening around the time that that law was passed. So with freedom of speech, how are people speaking to each other? How are they communicating to each other? Well, they're communicating through newspapers, through handwritten letters, oftentimes delivered on horseback, or if we're delivering it overseas, that communication is being delivered by ships, taking long periods of time. Maybe over time we're getting to telegrams and communication through that. But we do not communicate that same way anymore. Yes, people still do read newspapers. Yes, people still write letters. But those aren't the main ways of communicating. Why? Because we as a society have evolved. Through this evolutionary process, we've developed new ways that we can communicate with each other. So now how we communicate primarily is based on our phones. And not even calling individuals on our cell phones, but emailing individuals or texting individuals. So what we can look at with this idea of law as an organic process is that as times progressed and things change, our laws have to be flexible and gradually change with it. So under this idea, laws are only valid if they are functional. Functionality changes as we progress through our time. As we get new forms of communication, yes, we can still have that law on the books, the freedom of press, the freedom to communicate with other individuals. But we have to refine that law or refine our interpretation or application of that law to make sure that we are fitting the modern day circumstances to the law. If we're not being flexible, according to this theory, the law becomes invalid because it doesn't have a function. It's not serving any purpose. Those are the three basic theories that we have. There's many more that we could talk about, but those three all somewhat work together within our society right now in ways that I just talked about with natural law theory and legal positivism. We have a legal process, but we also have individuals arguing for the morality of the rules through that process. We also, at the same time, have people arguing for the functionality of a law, for arguing that we need to change or update or redefine different aspects of the law according to the changes that have happened in society. But in order to wrap this idea up of why we have laws and what laws are, I like to go to a specific definition from the field of sport management. And this is a, a definition from an old 1994 textbook by an individual named Dory. And in it, they say, quote, The legal process is designed to protect the rights of every person. In doing so, it establishes the limits of individual rights and responsibilities, not only for those who participate in sports, but for leaders and administrators as well. They go on to say, Law is a system of principles or rules that are established and enforced to regulate human behavior. This regulation is accomplished by establishing obligations and rights and by imposing a system of redress that allows penalties to be imposed for violations. End quote. 
So I like this definition because it wraps up everything that we said, but it also highlights one last key fact. Laws not only dictate what we can and cannot do, based oftentimes on moral uh, obligations or moral underpinnings and the idea of functionality. Laws also stipulate what happens if an individual breaks the law, if they violate the language that is identified. Again, this is something that can be traced back a bit to Thomas Aquinas and what he talked about as the seven basic goods, the idea of shunning ignorance. So we have laws not only to establish rules and regulations and regulate human interactions with one another, but also to punish people if they choose not to follow those regulations. The idea being is that the punishment will hopefully be enough when included with your moral underpinnings to make it so you do not want to violate the rules and you want to act as society deems is appropriate. But let's take a second now and let's apply this knowledge that we've just gained. Let's apply these legal theories to the case of the shipwrecked sailor. And this is, as I said at the beginning, one of the most famous lawsuits that is taught across the country and really across the world. It is Regina versus Dudley and Stevens, and it's a case from 1884. I'll start by laying out the facts of what happened, and then we'll start to break down those facts to try to answer the final legal question and determine why the court made the decision that it did. So the facts of the case. In 1884, an individual in Australia bought a ship from a company up in England. Now, 1884, the only way to get the ship from England to Australia is to sail it down there, to deliver it. So four Englishmen were tasked with doing this. Dudley, Stevens, Brooks, and Parker. Dudley was the captain of the ship, Stevens was the first mate, Brooks was a sailor, and Parker was the cabin boy. Unfortunately, as they're traveling down past Africa, a big storm hits, and it actually casts them 1,600 miles away from the Cape of Good Hope around South Africa. As a result of the storm, they were compelled to put themselves into an open boat, into a life raft, and abandon the ship. The big issue was they didn't have a lot of food or a lot of time to grab a bunch of stuff to take with them. So the only food that they were able to grab as they were putting themselves in this rowboat were two cans of turnips. Each can was only one pound. On the fourth day in that small boat, they were lucky and they actually happened to catch a small turtle as well. But even if you include that small turtle, those two can of turnips weren't enough to last them long. And they actually only lasted them 12 days. They went another eight days with no food. Now, the only water they had to drink was the occasional rainwater that they happened to catch. By day 18 at sea, they had been without food at this point for seven days. They'd been without water for five days. At this point, Dudley and Stevens, the captain and first mate, talked to Brooks, the sailor. And what they talk about is what they should do if they're not soon rescued. Dudley and Stevens suggest that one of the four of them should be sacrificed or killed in order to save the rest. And specifically, they were saying that Parker, the cabin boy, should be sacrificed. And they were saying that in part because Parker was already not doing well. He had drinking water from the ocean, which, if you know anything about survival, is a very quick way to get yourself very sick. So Parker was sick. He hadn't eaten. He did not look good. So Dudley and Stevens suggested they should kill Parker and that the three of them would be able to live off of his blood and his body for at least a little bit longer. However, Brooks said no. And when Brooks said no, that was the end of the conversation. It's important to note for the case, Parker was never asked. They never discussed this with him. The very next day on day 19 at sea, Dudley suggests to Stevens and Brooks again that they should sacrifice one of the individuals in order to sustain the life of the other three. But this time, he suggested that they draw lots. If you don't know what that is, a more common saying in today's vernacular is drawing straws. The idea being, you if there's four people in the boat, you have four straws, three of them are the exact same length, one of them is shorter, you put your hand around them so you can't see which one is shorter, each person picks a straw, 
the person with the short straw, in this case, gets killed. So Dudley, the captain, suggests to Stevens and Brooks that they draw lots. But Brooks again says no, but Dudley and Stevens go on to keep talking. And they agree that one of them has to die. Because if one of them doesn't die, then everyone will die. And they agree, if they're not going to draw lots, that the one to die should be Parker. The other three men were older. They had families. Parker was younger. He was 17 or 18 years old. He had no family. He was also the one that was the sickest, the one that was most likely to die first anyways. So Dudley and Stevens agree, if by morning they have not seen a boat, that they would kill Parker. Date 20 rolls around. And as you can imagine, there's no boats in sight. So... What do they do? Dudley says a prayer, pulls out a penknife, and goes over and stabs Parker in the throat, killing him almost immediately. The three of them, Dudley, Stevens, and Brooks, then feed on Parker's body for the next four days. On their 24th day at sea, the three men are rescued by a passing boat. After they are rescued, they are taken straight to jail, and Dudley and Stevens are put on trial, and they are accused of murder. The interesting thing in this case is that Dudley and Stevens didn't argue that they didn't murder Parker. They actually admitted that. They told them that they had killed Parker. So the question of whether a murder occurred was not the substantive question of the trial. The substantive question of the trial, whether Dudley and Stevens were not guilty of murder due to necessity. Well, what does that mean? What does the idea of necessity mean? In law, in 1884, in England, necessity meant that I had no other choice. That if I did not commit the act, then I myself would have died. And it's actually a defense that had been used in other cases successfully. And the defense attorneys or the individuals arguing for Dudley and Stevens, they make this point. And they point to two other cases. In a similar case in 1641, seven Englishmen were stranded on an island for 17 days, and they cast lots to determine who should be killed. The person who drew the short straw was killed, they fed on the body, and the other individuals were again put on trial for murder. However, they were found not guilty because it was deemed that the murder was done purely out of necessity. That if the other six men had not killed the one, then everyone would have died. And so necessity is this idea that it will excuse an act which would otherwise be deemed a crime. In another case, very similar, that was argued and pointed to for legal precedent at this trial, was a case in which two shipwrecked persons, people had actually been thrown overboard, their ship had wrecked and broken up, they were overboard in the water. These two shipwrecked persons were clinging to the same plank, and one of them thrust or pushed the other one from it, and finding that it will not support both, that other person ended up drowning. The person that clung to the single plank ended up living. I call this the Titanic example. The individual who pushed the other person away was accused of homicide. And in that case, it says that this homicide is excusable through unavoidable necessity and upon the great universal principle of self-preservation, which prompts every man to save his own life in preference to that of another when they must inevitably perish. So in that case, they were found not guilty. And they say specifically in this 1884 court ruling, quote, that the necessity he is speaking of was of a physical necessity in reference to the shipwrecked individuals in the water. And it was self-defense against a violent force. So these arguments are being made in court. The other key important facts that are pointed to in the trial are that it is believed that if Dudley, Stevens, and Brooks had not killed and eaten Parker, that they were all likely to die. It is also believed that Parker was in a much weaker condition and he was likely to die before them anyways. So if he had died before them anyways, before they were rescued, they argued, well, we would have eaten him just the same to survive. So all we were doing was speeding up his death, but he was already going to die, so we didn't cause it. 
They also continuously point in the lawsuit, in the case, that there was no ship in sight at the time of the murder, and that they hadn't had any expectation to be saved. They say, quote, There was no applicable chance of saving life except by killing one of the others to eat, end quote. Based off all of this, how do you think they ruled? Was their murder out of necessity? Did they do it in a manner that if they had not, everyone would have died? So all that they were trying to do was preserve their own life. Before we get to the answer, let's go back and let's talk about the application of these three theories, natural law, legal positivism, and law as an organic process. And let's begin with the last. Let's begin with law as an organic process. Because once we have laws put in place to govern individual behavior, one of the first laws that we establish is that you cannot kill other people. Almost every society has that basic law. But that law does not stand by itself. There are exceptions to that law. Those exceptions are based off functionality. They've evolved over time, giving certain circumstances in which we actually deem it okay to commit murder. The prime example, and the example that's actually talked about with the Titanic court case, is that if I am defending myself from harm of another individual, then I have the right to do it, and therefore it is not murder. So in the Titanic example, he is acting in a way to defend himself because if he did not push the other person away then he would have been pushed away and he would have himself died that is the sole reason that he is found not guilty in the titanic example laws evolve and one of these evolutions is this idea of necessity this idea that if i do something if i have no other choice but to do something then even if that something violates the law i have not broken the law So if I have no other choice but to kill you in order to live myself, the argument is that I am now killing you out of necessity, therefore it is not murder. So we can see how this idea of the functionality of the law comes into play. If it was just you can't murder any individuals and anyone that kills someone else gets killed themselves or goes to jail, well, then we wouldn't be able to take into consideration the circumstances of the crime. The notion of law as being functional, as an organic process, something that grows and changes over time as we evolve as societies, is important to the argument of necessity. Also important to the argument is the idea of natural law theory and the idea of murder. According to natural law theory in Thomas Aquinas, murdering another individual would be immoral because it violates one of the seven basic goods. One of those goods, life. By removing someone's life from them, I have acted in an immoral way. And in acting in an immoral way, I violated God's intent for society. And thus, I have violated the law. If I focus only on natural law theory, it's pretty easy to see that even though they try to justify their acts through necessity, it doesn't matter because it is still an immoral act. I am still depriving someone else of their life, the first basic good that Aquinas talks about, in order to sustain my own. So if I only consider that view of laws, the conclusion is pretty easy to reach. But according to law as an organic process, we have to change how we interpret the law as society changes so it's not as clear cut. What about the last theory, this theory of legal positivism? In this one, remember Law is seen as valid if it is passed according to procedures. The only thing I care about is if the law that's on the books was put in place through the correct means. So in this case, again, it's a lot simpler. As long as the law that defines what murder is and bans people from doing it, as long as we followed the correct procedures to put it in place, the law is valid. And we can argue that the two sailors, Dudley and Stevens, violated that law. So you can start to understand, depending how we view the functionality of law, depending how we view the purpose of the formation of laws, can start to change how we view the guilt or innocence of Dudley or Brooks. Under two of these theories, under legal positivism, under natural law theory, it's pretty easy to say that these two individuals should be found guilty. But if we consider the third theory, law as an organic process, law as something that grows and evolves over time and changes based off changing circumstances and that we only look at the validity of law as being something that is functional, that theory 
which suggests we have to take into consideration the entirety of the case. We would have to take into consideration the fact that if they had not killed Brooks, they themselves would have died. That it was only out of necessity that they killed him. So the importance of this case isn't necessarily the conclusion, at least in teaching sport law, but rather in highlighting how we can start to view the same situation under different lights according to the basic theory that we use to view it. In this case, what the court said was that yes, there have been past cases like the 1641 case of the seven Englishmen shipwrecked on an island, and like the case of the two shipwrecked persons who were trying to cling to a piece of wood. There have been cases in which acts were deemed to be a necessity, but those two particular cases don't apply to this situation. And this is something that's key within our interpretation of legal precedent, because legal precedent only works If the circumstances are exactly the same, if the circumstances change, now all of a sudden the case, the previous finding might not fit the new case. So in the case of the seven Englishmen who were stranded, the court said, yes, they were found not guilty out of the pressure of necessity. However, there was one key difference. They drew lots. And in drawing lots, all seven Englishmen had agreed to the act with Brooks Dudley, Stevens, and Parker, Parker was never consulted. Parker never agreed to the act. Lots were never drawn. Dudley and Stevens just decide that Parker would be the one to die. Now, you can argue that they had good justification for that, considering he was already ill and that he was likely to not survive. But the key word there is likely. You cannot prove that he would have died in the next four days. He might have lived five days, in which case the ship would have come, they would have been rescued, and maybe they all would have been fine. That's a key difference in the shipwreck case. There's another key argument in the fact that it was tried in a different area, that the individuals had actually killed the one individual on an island that was owned by the French and not the English. So there was a question that was brought up about the application of English laws when a crime happened in a different country. But again, that basic premise of drawing lots and everyone agreeing to it makes the one case not apply to the current one. As far as the two shipwrecked persons trying to cling to one piece of wood. Again, necessity was deemed to be a proper defense there. But what's the key difference? I said in the case that both individuals were fighting for the piece of wood. And that one pushed the other way in order to sustain their grasp on that piece. If they had not pushed the other away, then they themselves would have been pushed away and they would have died. In order for something to be classified as self-defense, there has to be an act of aggression towards the individual. So why, yes, in the Titanic case, an individual was deemed to act out of necessity in self-defense. In the Dudley and Stevens case, there was no act of aggression by Parker. I clearly said Parker was so sick, he was just laying in the corner of the boat. Parker did not attack them, and they defended themselves against his attack. Parker was too ill to do that. They merely took a knife out and went over and cut his throat. So because there's no act of aggression, the court said that the case of the two shipwrecked persons in the water also doesn't apply. And so a necessity has merits because of this idea that we have to grow and evolve laws with time. It does not have merits within the Dudley and Stevens case. Because no lots were drawn, because all four people didn't agree to the act, because Parker never attacked anyone else, there was no act of necessity. While you can argue that they probably would have died if they had not killed Parker and eaten him, you cannot definitively prove it. Since you cannot definitively prove it, and since those other elements that I just mentioned were not in place, the court ruled that Dudley and Stevens were guilty of murder. All that to say, this case helps to highlight the legal process. It helps us to understand not only the application of these basic theories that we just talked about, but it also helps us to see how courts will look at other legal decisions and break them apart to see if they can use those legal decisions as legal president in the current case. 
My hope is that this conversation helps you not only understand the philosophies that underpin the legal system, but also shows you how we can apply laws to a situation and how the interpretation of those laws slowly evolves over time. But the main question that I get in lectures when I have this discussion is what does any of this have to do with the field of sport? What does any of this have to do with sport management? And the answer is pretty simple. Sport, just like so many other aspects of our day-to-day lives, is guided by the legal underpinnings of our society. It's guided by aspects of our government. It is guided and influenced in large ways by the laws that are passed. And so to understand truly how those laws have evolved, where they've come from, what they mean, we need to have this basic understanding of why we have laws in the first place. Because having that basic understanding allows us to see the purposes behind the laws, to interpret their meanings, and as a sport manager, to make sure that we are abiding by those principles. And if we disagree with the principles, to provide us an avenue of going about changing them. This knowledge of the philosophy that underpins our laws and the knowledge that underpins why we have a government also allows us to better interpret those laws that specifically apply or have been applied to the field of sport. We talk at length in multiple podcasts about things like the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth, the Fourteenth Amendment. We talk about things like Title IX. All of those laws are founded on these basic principles that we have talked about today and have been interpreted in lawsuits just like that of the case of the shipwreck sailors. And so the knowledge of what is happening to underpin these principles of operations within our society allows us as sports managers to better understand and interpret those laws which directly apply to our field. That is why this conversation is such an important one to have with those individuals who are interested in the field of sport management. Because while we can talk about specific laws like the ones I just mentioned, We need to also understand why we have the laws in the first place, to understand the good that those laws are trying to do, and to understand why we as Americans are willing to give up certain rights in exchange for protections from the government. If you have any questions about law or about the case that we discussed, please feel free to reach out to us at the Sport Professor on Instagram. I know we didn't dive in a lot to sports in this particular podcast, but we have plenty of other legal podcasts that do attach the law to specific sports situations. So I would urge you to check those out as well. Until next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.